You're listening to the Illinois Farm Talk podcast. Here are your hosts, Ben and Garth. We're going to have a series of bills that that I think are going to offer significant reforms, uh, not just when it comes to activities of PBMs, but what uh, prescription medication costs just people. I mean, people are getting soaked. I mean, everyone's getting soaked by the cost of prescription medication. I will be filing a bill um, that that will begin the conversation by saying there will be no PBMs anymore in the state's Medicaid system. It isn't going to work if you don't speak up. Hello, I am Ben Calcaterra, and I am here with Garth Reynolds, and we are here to bring you the next episode of Illinois Farm Talk by the Illinois Pharmacists Association, brought to you by the Law Office of Joseph J. Bogdan. In this episode, we will hear about what's on slate for 2020, including new PBM bills. And we will hear from the sponsor of some of those bills, Senator Andy Menar. So let's get started. Hello, Garth. Hello, Ben. So we have had a big 2019 year legislatively. A lot of things happened. Uh, We've got some good momentum going with PBM bills and and some other uh, important pharmacy legislation that happened last year. Uh, so continuing on with that momentum into the 2020 legislative slate, let's let's give everybody a little update on where we are and, and what's to come. Thank you, Ben. As we know, for followers of the podcast, we had significant legislation that has um, been passed or was in the midst of being passed during our last episode during veto session back in November that um, proposed substantial changes for the Pharmacy Practice Act. And those changes did get passed through, and that did allow for the Practice Act to be extended for three additional years, and did put in place many of the recommendations of the Collaborative Pharmaceutical Task Force. It didn't address all the recommendations, unfortunately, um, but it did address the majority of them. We now have in place where pharmacists are able to have a lunch, a 30-minute lunch, and a 15-minute break if they work longer than six hours. And if they work up to 12 hours, they have a 15-minute additional break. And there is now a cap of, of 12 hours per day for pharmacists in any working environment in the state. And I think these are very f- first steps that we, we needed to take to help address some of the well-being um, issues as we were seeing in the workforce that uh, where a lot of the labor constrictions and restrictions that have been placed upon the profession have really had a negative impact on not only pharmacist um, workflow and pharmacist output, but also on the stress of those staff members, not only the pharmacists, but technicians. And unfortunately, that starts to trickle down to the safety of the patient and the uh, just the, the ability of the quality of care that we're providing. And so this is a real, this is a first step. This isn't a full solution to the issue. And um, we still need to address some of the root causes, and we've talked about that in the past, but it, you know, we still have a lot of work to do when it comes to making sure that pharmacies are properly reimbursed, um, both for products and for patient care services, that can really alleviate a lot of the reasons to have these labor restrictions that have um, been put in place. Um, the task force was, the collaborative task force has actually been asked to continue for another couple of months to help address any additional issues that may come out as um, 
we start to implement the, the, these new regulations. And uh, we look forward to working with the task force and addressing new ideas as we look at trying to uh, advance the practice of pharmacy and the quality of patient care that we have. Um, but so that's a significant um, advancement that we had at the very beginning of the year. And I want to remind pharmacies and our listeners that all of these new recommendations from Senate Bill 2104, which became uh, Public Act uh, 621, that went into effect on January 1. And I know there has been some misinformation out there, but it did go into effect. All the provisions went into effect on January 1. Now, the Board of Pharmacy has admitted that they're going to be a little lenient at first as they're going around making sure everyone's properly educated, um, unless there's some egregious violation. But so if you're hearing this and your, your practice isn't giving you your lunch and break, you need to be going back to your pharmacy, pharmacy manager, pharmacist in charge, and addressing that issue. Now, I know that one question I've been getting uh, asked of me by other pharmacists is a clarification on, is the lunch mandatory or is it mandatory for owners and managers to offer that lunch to their employers or employees, I should say? So the question becomes, and I've had this asked a lot, does an employee, especially if they're their own owner and own manager, do they have the right to not take that lunch on their own behalf, as long as if they're an employee, the owner can document that, that it was offered, and they they denied that on their own, but do they have their own right, or are they forced to take that 30-minute lunch? At this point, with the way the bill is written and the way it went into effect, the lunch and break is mandatory, and it does, it, it has to be taken, and I think right now, at least from the board's point of view and the task force point of view, we want to make sure that the pharmacists, regardless of whether you're an employee pharmacist or you're the owner, you need to be taking time out of your day, not just to have a reset mentally as, as we're approaching patient care, making sure that we're providing the best quality care. But you did bring up a good point about making sure that there is tracking and you do need to make sure there's documentation of that. And that is one thing the board has been very adamant that they will be looking for. You need to have some type of documentation that you are, that the pharmacists have taken their lunch and have taken their break during that day. Uh, right now, it's it's a little gray of what required of, of the details of that documentation. So at least for now, you just need to document that it's being done. There's no real way of prescribing, you know, you have to have the, you know, the person's name, the time they took it, and all that stuff. You just need to document that it's being done. So one other uh, bill to touch on that we have mentioned in previous podcasts over, over the last couple of episodes was Senate Bill 667, which was an initiative brought forward by Senator Menar to take a look at uh, capping patients' out-of-pocket costs when it comes to insulin. And we've talked extensively about this, that this would have a $100 cap for a 30-day supply. And um, this bill did pass in veto session, which is a significant feat in itself that um, it was able to get through veto session when a lot of new legislation does not pass during that time. And the governor just recently signed that back on January 24th. And so for this year, for what how that impacts patients for 2020, um, the Department of Insurance is supposed to be um, developing a report and on the um, barriers and the impact of uh, pricing of insulin products, and that has to be reported at the end of the year. 
but the pricing caps don't go into effect for contracts until starting January 1 of 2021. And to keep in mind, these are state-funded insulin transactions. This isn't um, private employer health group plans. This isn't Medicare Part D seniors. Um, This is um, state-funded plans, state employee plans, you know, for instance. Those are the plans that that we're looking at that this particular bill is going to help. And that's correct. And that's where, you know, it's it becomes back to the limitations that we've always talked about with any type of insurance regulation that, you know, if it's an ERISA plan or something that's, you know, it's a self-insured plan, it, th- those type of things are Medicare and Medicaid, it doesn't always get covered. It doesn't impact those plans. And so, y- yes, it does cover some, but it doesn't cover all, but it's a beginning and it's a start. So ERISA is the limitation that uh, prevents us at a state level from uh, making more impactful legislation to cover more uh, patients across the state. And interestingly enough, there's a current update we need to discuss about the ERISA plans and the uh, case that's being heard out of the state of Arkansas. Uh, it's going to make its way all the way to the Supreme Court. So, Garth, why don't you give us a little update on that and how ERISA may change the scope of, of these pharmacy legislative bills? With, with the state of Arkansas, as we know, Arkansas for a number of years has had success in um, putting forward groundbreaking regulation legislation against the pharmacy benefit managers. And to that extent, some of the boundaries that they have pushed have actually um, covered some regulations that uh, some of the regulations have had an impact on these ERISA-type plans or plans that could possibly, depending on your legal argument, fall under ERISA's umbrella. And that's where really the core argument that we are facing in this case, where the state of Arkansas um, put forward some legislation and the in PCMA, which is the lobbying group for pharmacy benefit managers, sued the state of Arkansas, which started the ball rolling. And this ended up in a federal appellate court and um, there was, and, and the ruling continues to go on where now we're in the Supreme Court. So we have a interesting opportunity here because for this longest time in federal court, not just in this case, but in other cases, the PBMs have just continued to argue. And unfortunately, right now, they do have the upswing because the courts have kind of backed them up that a lot of the regulations that we have tried to impose upon PBMs are exempt because of ERISA. And because of this exemption or preemption, they feel that everything is to be upheld, including the, the appeal that they had, they had in the federal court. Now, this puts us in a little bit of a disadvantage because this significantly impacts a large amount of plans, like we talked about with the insulin bill. With all of the populations that we can impact with that, with that bill, it only is going to attribute to about 20 to 30 percent of the state population, where if we can really have an impact and have true regulation, and it comes almost back to a state's rights issue, which I hope gets brought up in this in these arguments, that the states should have power over all insurance plans that are in that are affecting their citizens. And so 
and that PBMs cannot hide behind um, that, that, that ERISA argument anymore and that they are accountable to the states and ultimately accountable to the patients that they try to supposedly say they serve. And as we go through how long these, these cases have gone on, this isn't something that just has happened. This has been going on for a number of years. So in the early days, whenever Iowa was putting legislation forward and we had an appeal there and we lost, a pharmacy lost in Iowa, and that was because their language really impacted ERISA. When that lawsuit happened and there was already movement that would show that we would not want any legislation going forward that would impact ERISA or could be interpreted to impact ERISA, and with the issues going on in Arkansas in the early days of, of them rolling this this legislation out and it, be, and it went into the courts, that's one of the reasons why IPHA, why we had to radically put, hit the pause button for a moment and rethink our approach towards PBM legislation. And it actually what caused us to kind of do a little bit of a curve because everything that we were doing was heading us right down the same road that Iowa and Arkansas were going down. Now, that meant that, yes, we were going to have very aggressive, strong legislation, but at this point, the way everything was going in the courts, it would have been immediately not worth the paper it was on, at least the current legal interpretation. And so that's why we had to take some reinterpretation and rethinking of how we were approaching our legislative strategy and making sure that nothing that we were doing would touch ERISA in any way, shape, or form. And that's where we were able to continue to have the successes that we've had, specifically last year with House Bill 465. But getting back to the Arkansas case, this argument that the PBMs have put up in court over the last number of years is, oh, we're not an insurance company. You can't do anything to us. But then they would throw up the ERISA flag anytime that they, they could, like a referee throwing a flag on the field. Well, it's one of those situations you can't have your cake and eat it too. So I would say, because they kept using the argument, well, we're a subcontractor. We're not an insurance company. We're a separate entity over here. So if the Supreme Court case was heard right now, now again, this is my non-legal opinion, but looking at it from a political point of view, the PBMs probably had a good case and they could probably win this case easy because looking at the scope of what a PBM does at that time, possibly, depending on your legal argument, they, they, could, they could have an, a, a positive argument here to sway a judge, or in this case, nine judges. But now that we've had this vertical integration between Express Scripts and Cigna, and Aetna, and Caremark, and Optum, and United Healthcare all coming together. So you have now 85% of the market share in three companies that are now completely insurance companies all the way through. I find that their argument has no weight anymore and that the court needs to look at significantly look at the current marketplace not when the argument was initially filed, but the marketplace today, they no longer have the protection that they thought they may have had. And it actually puts the swing back in the pharmacy and patient's favor. And hopefully the justices see that. And that's one of the reasons why 
the Arkansas Pharmacists Association, along with NCPA and uh, their, the legal firms that they've hired, are working very closely with the Attorney General of Arkansas in working on the arguments for this case. And one of the things that's going to come out of that is there is going to be a, an amicus brief that's going to be filed to the Supreme Court. And for those that don't know what that term means, amicus brief just means simply a friend of the court. So it's a way for organizations that aren't involved in the case or parties that aren't directly named in the case can say, this, we share this legal opinion. Here's our legal reasoning why justices should look at this information and in this interpretation of the law and the case law. Because you got to remember, yes, there will be arguments, but there's no witnesses. It's all based on case law, and it's all based on the arguments that's presented. And that's why the, we, this development of an amicus brief is so important. And IPHA is working very closely along with the other state pharmacy associations and the national associations in doing what we can to help support Arkansas because we will be a signatory along with many other states and national organizations on this amicus brief. IPHA has actually even gone as forward. Our board of directors has approved a monetary pledge to the Arkansas Pharmacists Association for their legal defense fund and helping make sure that costs are covered because all states are in this together. This isn't just the state of Arkansas. This is the entire profession that is having to fight for our future because if this case goes into a negative way where the PBMs win on this, I really unfortunately think it's going to be damning to the entire profession. And we and it may be a death nail that we have never thought could happen in helping us try to fight for patients and to fight for the preservation of our entire profession. And as important as you have... Um, explain that issue to be to our profession. I know a lot of people listening to this podcast, um, not just across the state of Illinois, but nationwide, they understand the importance of that. And they've been watching. You know, this has made its way around social media, and, and, and pharmacists know that this is going on. They're, they're, it's, it's on their radar. And they want to help. They want to do something. Traditionally, when we bring up issues like this, we're talking about bills. We're talking about go talk to your legislator, go talk to your senator, your representative, uh, give them information, get your patients involved, call, call, call. This is not that type of a situation. You can't call up the Supreme Court justice and say, let me give you my view on this situation. It doesn't work like that. This is different. So we, we understand you want to help. The way to help is monetary help in what we just talked about with the defense fund through the state of Arkansas. So if, if you want to help, call up the IPHA office and tell them you want to help the Arkansas defense fund for the Rutledge case, and we will make sure that your funds get to Arkansas. So call up the office today, um, express interest, ask how you can help monetarily, and, and we'll make that happen for you. Because like Garth said, this isn't an Arkansas issue anymore. This has turned into the national pharmacy defense at this point for the profession to stay alive in, in the form that we, we know it. Because we know if, if, if the PBMs get a win, it's the end of, of pharmacy as we know it. It will all change. And on that note, 
Um, switching gears from Arkansas back to the state of Illinois, um, there are ways that you can help us. And like I just said, when we have bills, when we have um, issues come up at the Capitol and we need the help of our pharmacists in a grassroots effort, we need you to call, we need you to come up and, and talk to your legislators. The best time to do that is Legislative Day, Illinois Pharmacy Legislative Day. It's coming up. It's in April. Garth, when is that? April 22nd. April 22nd. And registration is open now, as of today. And, and we're recording this on the 12th of February. So by the time you hear this, it will have been open for a while. Um, go ahead. Sign up. Get online. You can go to the IPHA website. You can go to the ICHP website. ICHP is the Hospital Pharmacy Association for the state of Illinois, and they're the ones actually coordinating Ledge Day this year. Uh, we alternate years, IPHA and ICHP, and this is their year, so we are supporting them this year in this effort. Uh, but you can sign up on either website. We'll direct you to the same form. It's, it's no big deal. Just get registered and come up to Springfield. You, every year has been more important than the previous for retaining our professional status. And this year is as important as any other. We need your help. We need you to come in droves to the Capitol. We need to bombard the Capitol with white coats, pharmacists. We will have the students, but we need the pharmacists to show up and plead your case. Tell them what you're seeing on a day-to-day -day basis. Plead the story of your patients and the detriment to your pharmacy that, that, that the PBMs are having, that the environment of, of the pharmacy profession is having on your stores, and what will happen if you close your doors to your community. That is the biggest issue that we're facing right now. So please, register, come up, plead your case. So with that, we're, uh, we're going to take a little break here. Um, speaking of all this advocacy with Ledge Day, we're, we're going to hear about how effective that's going to be coming back from the short break we're about to take when we hear from our special guest, Senator Andy Menard. We'll be right back. Joseph J. Bogdan, or Jay, is a pharmacist and an attorney. He received his PharmD from the University of Illinois and was a chief pharmacy prosecutor with the Illinois Department of Professional Regulation and has now been in his current practice for 20 years. Jay is an active member with the Illinois Pharmacists Association and currently serves as a regional director on the board of directors. If you are a pharmacy technician, pharmacist, or pharmacy owner who has been contacted or accused of a legal violation by the state board, DEA, PBMs, or any other agency, contact Jay at 630-310-1267. You can call a lawyer, or you can call a lawyer who knows pharmacy, because he is one of you. You can find more information about the Law Office of Joseph J. Bogdan on their website at www.jjblawoffice.com or call 630-310-1267. Again, 630-310-1267. Hello, I am Ben Calcaterra, and I want to let you know just how important it is to hold a membership in the Illinois Pharmacists Association. The Illinois Pharmacists Association stands up for all pharmacists across the state, from community to health system, 
academia to long-term care. Your membership will strengthen the efforts of the entire association. Consider joining today to gain valuable insights and updates about news and events affecting the profession of pharmacy in the state of Illinois. To gain educational opportunities such as CPEs and certificate training programs, or to help advocate to protect the abilities of pharmacists to practice in the best way they possibly can. Stand up for your profession, stand up for your state, and stand up for your patients. Join today. Call the office today or log on to IPHA.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at IL Pharmacist. That's plural with the S, IL Pharmacists. Welcome back from that short break brought to you by the Law Office of Joseph J. Bogdan. We now have the privilege to hear from one of our biggest supporters at the Capitol, Senator Andy Menard. Senator Menard from Bunker Hill is a Democratic senator from the 48th District, and he is probably best known for his activity reforming educational funding. But we are hoping to change that by making waves on behalf of the pharmacy community and money-pinching patients across the state. Welcome, Senator Andy Menard. Thanks for having me. Senator, describe your entrance into politics. What, what was it that initially sparked your interest to run for office? Oh, that's a good question. I haven't thought about this in a while, actually. Um, so I, I would go back to when I was in high school, and I was, um, I was uh, looking to get a head start on college, and I enrolled in a course as a senior in high school, a college course through Lewis and Clark Community College, and the instructor of the course at Carlinville, it was an off-campus course at Carlinville High School, not too far from Bunker Hill where I live, and the instructor's name was Vince DiMuzio, who um, at the time was a state senator, um, was the majority leader in the Senate, and had served, I think he served 33 years in the state Senate. Um, so I didn't enroll in the course because of him. I enrolled in the course because I wanted to get some credit under my belt uh, before I graduated high school. Uh, but he he opened the doors for um, what what my definition of public service is and what it means and you know why, why does someone go into this business um, it's almost exclusively defined by uh, my experience um, uh, being in his class and then working for Senator DiMuzio in his district office and then um, subsequently at the state senate before I ran for uh, to be a member of the state senate. Well, that's great. Uh, the background always uh, enlightens people on where your efforts come from, you know, and what interests you. And I know that I said in the introduction that you're probably most well-known for the efforts in educational funding. So before we get into pharmacy, could you talk about what's on your horizon for that effort that you have? Yeah, so we've, we've had three years now of the what, what we call the evidence-based um, funding model in place, and it has injected um, almost by every measure complete stability into our school funding system in the state. We, we, by all accounts, by all measurements, we're the worst in the country uh, when you measure equity, when you measure stability, when you measure driving resources to underserved communities. Uh, we've now had three fiscal years of this new system, and it has made our system completely stable in Illinois. That didn't happen overnight. It took a lot of grassroots um, organizing, and it took, frankly, making uh, legislators and policymakers feel a little uncomfortable about the status quo before we forced that change. Um, but, uh, you know, today, the system today is so much better than it used to be. Um, but one lesson I learned from that is you just don't wish it to change. You know, you just can't hope 
that it's going to change. Hope is a good thing, but hope has to have action to back it up if if we're ever going to get something as monumental as school funding reform done. And in that case, we did. It was grassroots effort matched by bipartisan support in the House and the Senate. And today, kids across Illinois are better because of it. Yes, the system is definitely different, and, and thanks to your efforts in doing so. So we want to thank you for that. Um, I know pharmacy students are, are mm -hmm. benefiting from that, and the profession of pharmacy will benefit from that for years to come. So thank you for that. Um, your insulin cap bill from veto session, huge success for diabetics across the state. How do we keep the ball rolling from that win to expand on that success and include more patients, whether it be diabetics or even moving into other disease states? Yeah, I, I have to say on the outset, um, anytime I talk about the insulin bill is if someone were to tell me um, when I introduced this bill, which I think was the last week of May in 2019, that we would have that bill signed into law in January of 2020, I would have said, you're nuts. There's no way. Um, because of all of the things that present uh, obstacles to reform, especially in the healthcare sector, uh, pharmaceutical companies, um, you know, they have, I, I say this all the time, and, and it's true, they have armies of lobbyists and lawyers in the Capitol building, PPMs, of course, insurance companies, all those people were opposed. Um, but lo and behold, something else took over this with this bill. And, um, and I would say that the seeds to that insulin bill were planted with our first uh, PBM transparency bill. Um, those seeds were planted and grew into the insulin bill and grassroots organizing took over and advocacy, um, not just from pharmacists, uh, but from all kinds of people. Um, obviously those that are affected by diabetes to um, people that are just struggling to pay copays for their pharmaceuticals that they need to stay alive. And so it's my hope that, that we now, and I say we, I mean legislators from both sides of the aisle, have seen what grassroots advocacy can really accomplish when it's set into motion. And we take that now and we apply it to any number of things that I think we have a, a good deal of momentum to get done in this uh, legislative session this spring. Absolutely, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And we're gonna touch on the grassroots effort definitely more in this talk. Um, and, and moving from the veto session insulin bill, you mentioned the PBM transparency bill, and that is of great interest to pharmacists across the state. It's, it's the number one talking point when pharmacists get together, they talk about the current environment. Um, we had a great momentum building bill moving last year. Um, do you see the momentum on transparency with the PBMs moving forward as well for this coming year? I, I do, and I think that's being driven by, um, by external factors. And it's also being driven by internal factors in the state. So the external factors, I would say um, that legislators are paying attention to what's happening in other states. And that's externally forcing the question, well, if all these other states are doing this, why, why shouldn't we start down this path in Illinois? So that is a very big external factor. Um, internal factors are things that I bring up all the time in the Appropriations Committee that I chair. Um, why are taxpayers getting socked with a bill in the state's Medicaid program, for example, for, for this so-called service that, that, frankly, we should start asking the question publicly, plan to do it this, this coming session. 
why are we paying for this so-called service and what exactly does it do for us as a state um, as a state government on behalf of taxpayers and people in the Medicaid program so there's internal factors there's external factors when you add momentum on top of that and grassroots advocacy that's when I think we can start to really turn the tide on things that um, that all forces in the Capitol building try to stop. So it's not going to be easy. Um, no, nothing's easy. Otherwise, it would have been done a long time ago. But, um, but I think we have very good things in place today um, that, that, that raise the odds significantly to, for example, truly address what PBMs are doing in the state of Illinois today. It's not going to be easy, but, but things are in place that I think really raise the odds that we can get that done. Um, in addition to that, and, and we and, and really, I'm glad that you're you're talking about this because we really need to kind of pull back the curtain and just really see what what the state's getting for the efforts of what the the PBMs are saying they're doing. Um, and you know, we built, as Ben said, we built that momentum last year with the passage of House Bill 465. And um, what initiatives this year are you looking at specifically and wanting to to help but to, to bring even more? insight of the egregious actions that PBMs are, 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 are doing in Illinois. Yeah, we're, we're putting together today, um, and, and again, I keep referencing we, but you know, my mind is, uh, right now my mind's two blocks away down in the Capitol building, but, um, but uh, we're going to have a series of bills that, that I think are going to offer significant reforms, uh, not just when it comes to activities of PBMs, but what uh, prescription medication costs just people people. I mean, people are getting soaked. I mean, right. everyone's getting soaked by the cost of prescription medication. And those uh, those activities by pharmaceutical companies, PBMs, insurance companies, um, the government is giving them permission to do it. Um, so the government is literally saying, you can go soak people, go have at it. And so we have to, we have to draw that back and we have to start to propose reasonable things that can get bipartisan support and the governor's signature um, to start to chip away at that. Um, I, I will be filing a bill um, that that will begin the conversation by saying there will be no PBMs anymore in the state's Medicaid system. Um, so, so we'll start right there. Um, there will be other bills, Garth, that, that, um, that I think will um, have wide bipartisan support, which by the way is not a magic wand, even though that's elusive sometimes, that doesn't uh, guarantee it's going to happen. Um, but this is a conversation that, that many, many legislators are looking forward to this year. And, and we're really glad of that because, you know, it's, it's been an advocacy effort of pharmacy for a number of years, and it's finally all has just come to a head at once. And it's, and it's also because we've had a national um, kind of consensus that this is a real problem issue. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and even today, there was um, new articles coming out that saying, you know, exposing an $8.5 billion um, dollar, um, uh, misuse of funds by Express Scripts. Yeah. And that's a brand new article that just came out today. But we have other legislative efforts that are going on across the country. And I know even in New York, you know, we saw a solid uh, PBM reform bill move through the legislators, you know, and it had bipartisan support, had a lot of strength from pharmacy and patient care stakeholders. But they got vetoed at the 11th hour by the governor. And, and again, to the dismay of all the pharmacists and patients that advocated so hard for it. Um, 
looking at Illinois, do you see support from the governor's office for these patient uh, prescription drug reforms that, you know, where, where are we in a positive light here for us here in Illinois? Well, here's how I'm going to pitch it to the governor, um, and I have, and I, I continue. Uh, I will continue to do it. Is um, if we can, if we can um, contain the cost of Medicaid, which, which upfront the state has done a reasonable job doing it. The practice on how that's being done is what's being called into question. Um, but if we can contain the cost of Medicaid and find savings in a system to, um, for example, maybe raise rates. Um, by saying, you know what, we don't need a service uh, offered to us through managed care, um, then that ought to be something that any governor uh, would, would want to support. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, would, I would just tell everyone that when the question of the insulin bill came up, and um, I, called, I called the governor one day and I said, look, this is, uh, I've, I've had meetings with constituents, these are people with insurance. These are people, teachers that, that you know that have children with diabetes, and their their copays are twice their house payment. And for crying out loud, what in the world has happened to make this legal? And I'm gonna file this bill. And you know what he said to me? He said, "I will sign it if you get it to my desk." He didn't hesitate. And so that that tells me a little bit about where he's at. Now, now I don't speak for him, right? I don't speak for the governor. Only he speaks for himself. But, but we have to just make our case. We have to make our case, and that means to the chief executive to earn his signature on whatever bill we pass. And and, and we hear from you know, and, and it's a great point because we hear from pharmacists that they want to contribute, but they're hesitant because they always feel like they've, you know, they may have a lack of knowledge to make their point. Or you know they they are they're really just afraid to talk to their legislator yeah. and they're they're just hesitant to that their voice matters. Um, but what would you say to those pharmacists and actually patients to help empower them and taking the first steps towards advocacy? So I I say this um, I say this all the time on all kinds of topics. I said it during the four year debate on school funding reform. I traveled the state to try to um, explain to people parents. PTA meetings. I mean, I remember going to PTA meetings in in Carterville and in town halls in Vandalia to say it isn't going to work if you don't speak up. I can file any bill. Mm-hmm. I can file, and it could be the best bill that was was ever created and drafted and put on paper. But but it doesn't matter what I do, if uh, or any legislator for that matter, if the advocacy backing up that proposal isn't there. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to that. Remember one of those first meetings we had on the fourth floor uh, when we were um, having uh, stakeholder meetings on the transparency bill? Right. And I asked for, um, I asked Caremark to give me the, the, the payments made to CVS and Staunton mm-hmm. versus the payments made for the state's group, uh, you know, group plan and retiree plan and Medicaid uh, to Sullivan's Pharmacy across the street from right. CVS and Staunton. And I said to them, prove to me you're not tilting the scale in your own favor. Exactly. And by the way, to date, I've never gotten that information. That was two years ago. I still haven't gotten that information. But it doesn't matter how many meetings uh, you and I have, Garth, in the Capitol mm-hmm. building. Um, that's important, right? It's right. not going to happen without that. But what really won't happen is if there's not advocacy. So it may be uncomfortable to call a legislator. I don't know, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know why, but but it's intimidating to some people. But understand that change doesn't happen unless people pick up the phone and speak up. 
Exactly right. And and that is an absolute must. And if we had more people doing that, frankly, we wouldn't have so many problems that we have, not just in the state, but in the country. So, so advocacy is an absolute must. I, I couldn't agree more because it just, as you said, we can have all the meetings and, you know, and, and IPHA is, it, it has a presence at the Capitol and talks with mm -hmm. legislators, but it, it, it really helps having that local support coming back to the individual legislators mm -hmm. going, hey, th this, what you're hearing from IPHA, that's happening to me in, my, in, in, in our hometown, in our district, mm -hmm. and it really does help that effort, so I, I appreciate that. So we've talked about advocacy. We've talked about engaging pharmacists across the state and engaging their patients, um, which, which uh, you know, getting the patients, I, I think, yeah. is key. Uh, so it's not just pharmacists complaining that, hey, we're not getting paid enough. We need the, the patients who are saying, we're getting socked in the mouth by these prices. Um, so, so let's have a, a fun one here. You're the coach. We're your team. We're going to bat for you in this big game to, to promote these bills. What's your pregame speech to the pharmacist across the state? Well, lucky for you guys, I coach Little League, so I'm prepared for this question. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Um, so, um, have a plan, you know, have a plan. We, we have to execute the game to the best of our ability and go play your hearts out. And if you, if you play your hearts out, chances are, chances are you're going to win the game. Um, and, and even though we may be up against the best team, you know, with the, with the, the cleanup batter that has the most home runs and they have the shiniest helmets and the best uniforms and everybody has a new pair of cleats. It doesn't matter. If we play our hearts out, um, we're going to win the game. Perfect. You heard it here. We were the bad news bears of the <laughs> Illinois, and we're going to fight for Senator Andy Menard. Uh, what have we left out? What, what's a key piece that you'd like to add to this talk? What, what have we not asked that you definitely think is important to hear? Yeah, I, I think a couple of things to stress. So, you know, what's going through my mind right now is what, uh, what do you say to a legislator? You know, what does a pharmacist say to a legislator? First of all, this isn't a partisan issue. Um, I would tell you, Representative Calkins, for example, um, he and I uh, share the responsibility of representing Macon County, and um, I represent the city of Decatur. He represents areas north. Um, Dan and I don't agree on a lot. I respect him. I, I respect him, but we just don't have agreement on issues. But we're cordial to each other, and we talk to each other, and we try to work together when we can. He is a supporter of these things. So this is a bipartisan issue um, that that is is too oftentimes partisanship gets in the way of, of uh, substantial change. So number one, I would stress that when you talk to a legislator, make sure that they know that you're not there for partisan reasons. You're there because um, you're gonna talk to them regardless of what party they belong to or where they belong in the state. Number two, um, uh, pharmacists in my district, in the 48th Senate district are small business owners. Don't discount the value of that. Don't discount the value of your storefront and what that means to the community that you serve um, in terms of the eyes of a legislator. That, that's a very uh, powerful uh, voice uh, from a small business owner perspective. Um, number three, and I don't think the pharmacists need any help on this one, but I'm going to say it anyway. I mean, call them out for what they are. I mean, these people are stealing money for crying out loud. So, I mean, it's, it, it, you know, judging by all of the lawsuits flying around from attorneys general around the country, it's, it's darn near criminal behavior. So don't be afraid to say that. Don't pull any punches. Um, but I think if, if, if we focus on those three things, bipartisanship, 
um, pharmacists speaking up, our small business owners who invest in the communities, underserved communities, and number three, uh, why, why should these people make money off of the government while not improving health outcomes? Those are three arguments that are hard to beat. Absolutely. Those are great words of wisdom. Uh, Garth, do you have anything else to add at this point? No, I don't think I, I, I do, except I just want to say thank you again for your continued support, because this is not an easy fight. This is not an easy issue for anyone to pick up, and we couldn't ask for um, a better champion right now to help lead us into this reform era of trying to help not only preserve access for patients' rights, but to preserve pharmacy in general and making sure that we're here to continue to do our jobs. And we're glad that you're here, you know, pushing this forward in every single way and doing everything, even thinking outside the box and, and going, why don't we look at this? And mm -hmm. let's just push it out there. Let's have that conversation and really doing what it takes to help us do what we can to um, be there for our community. I appreciate that. And I appreciate the, you know, the pharmacists in the 48th district coming to me. Um, this would have been about two years ago now and just explaining this to me in very blunt terms. Um, and I, I would also add, Garth, I share the responsibility with Representative Greg Harris in the House, the majority leader, and then obviously Representative Will Gazzardi in the House as well was a champion on the insulin bill. So, um, you know, when we start adding voices to this mix, that's when we're going we're gonna to get the good things done. Well, Senator, I want to applaud you on behalf of all pharmacists, not just in this great state of Illinois, but across the nation, who are continuously building on the successes of states like ours, moving pharmacy forward. So in that, thank you very much. Senator Andy Menard. Well, that was a great interview with Senator Andy Menard. We really thank him for stopping by and talking to us about the issues that we're, we are facing and uh, his plans for the future. Uh, to help us out, help patients out across the state. I think it's, uh, he's doing an excellent job, and we are excited to see more from him. Um, so with that, I think it's time to make our every show ask. Uh, we always ask for uh, help with our advocacy fund to help uh, push these legislative issues forward. It helps pay for um, the lobbyists that we use uh, for our, our advocacy efforts at the Capitol, it helps move the needle. And we saw that last year in 2019 with PBM reform. We are going to see it again in 2020 with the next steps. And we need your funds to make that happen. So please, again, call today, make your donation, and help us move the needle. Well, I think that's a wrap for now. So thank you, Garth. Thank you, Ben. And thank you to our listeners and our sponsor, the Law Office of Joseph J. Bogdan, for supporting this show. Check back regularly to hear new episodes as we will keep you updated on legislative matters happening around the state. You can find us on the internet at IPHA.org, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as IL Pharmacists. That's plural, with the S, IL Pharmacists. Follow us today to stay in the know. That will do it for this installment of Illinois Farm Talk. Stay tuned for our next chapter as the Voice for Pharmacy in Illinois brings you another edition of Illinois Farm Talk. Thank you for listening to the Illinois Farm Talk podcast. 